Well, I, boy, I know there's a couple preachers in the congregation today for which I give thanks. Um, I don't know if you will be able to discern an order, but uh, this is uh, a message that's been (laughs) heavy on my heart this week. Um, Let's get into it. Luke chapter 5, verse 1 to 11 is our gospel reading. But don't forget Jude 6. And don't forget 1 Corinthians 15, okay? Um, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their parents and the other, their partners, not their parents, their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to hear. Help us to hear your word. Help us to hear your word to us this morning. Amen. Well, if you remember Judges 6, um, Gideon hides out in a wine press, and he's threshing the wheat. Uh, And you that are you know, wheat farmers or you that have been around the church a little while and have heard this story, know that that's not normally what you're supposed to do, right? You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. That's an outside job um, because it needs the wind. And so the whole point here is that Gideon is sort of doing this public thing privately. Why? Well, he's doing it because the people of God have kind of been in this up and down cycle. They've been in this this up and down cycle where they're, they're faithful and more or less when they're faithful, things are going okay for them. But then they become unfaithful and there's sort of this lag time between being unfaithful and suffering the consequences of being unfaithful so they haven't quite learned yet. And in their unfaithfulness, God has allowed this people, the Midianites, to hang out on their borders. And the Israelites being the farmers that they are, at least in this portion, will go and they'll, they'll farm the land and they work hard all, you know, spraying, planting, and and raising, and weeding, and plowing, and doing all the things you're supposed to do. And as soon as it comes summertime, they go out and they harvest the grain. And then in the late summer, I'm applying our seasons to this. I don't know if this is actually how it is in Israel. In the late summer, they bring in their harvest. And rather than have their harvest stick around for the rest of the winter, the Midianites would come in and steal all their harvest. So, Gideon is threshing his wheat in the wine press because if he threshes it out in public, he knows the Midianites are going to see him threshing and they're going to come and take the wheat. 
All right, so he'd rather do a bad job and have, you know, too many pieces of wheat kernel in his bread all winter than actually thresh it well and get it stolen. The thing the Israelites were supposed to do when they went into the land was push out those who, uh, how do I say this, agreed with the enemy. <laughs> push out those who were engaged in kind of wicked and demonic practices. We have an idea sometimes that when the Israelites went into Canaan, they were just there to sort of take their land and, and push out neutral parties. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, that's not what's going on. God is using the Israelites, just as he will use Assyria and Babylon later on, to bring judgment on people who have worshipped wickedly. He's using Israel to bring judgment on people who have worshipped demons. But they don't do it. Because the question in their ancient minds was, maybe these demons are just the gods of this place. Maybe we ought to serve these demons if we want to stick around this zip code. And so they only pursue God's program sort of halfway. And when you pursue God's program halfway, you better believe that there will be people hanging around the borders of your life who are waiting to steal your harvest. That when you only sort of do what God has asked you to do halfway, it's not that there won't be sort of a little bit of the joy and the blessing and the peace and the welcome and all of the stuff that goes into following God. There will be some of that. But you will also get to this point where all of a sudden, now we're living in this sense of purposelessness. Now we're kind of like, why am I going back to this church? And they're talking about the same thing all the time. Why, why is my family struggling with the same problems? Why is my world struggling with the same problems? How come I don't know the neighbors I've lived next to for 15 or 20 years, and I certainly don't have any opportunities to do the thing that I believe God has called me to do? Because you've only pursued God's program halfway. Why am I not on fire with the mission of God? Why... Am I still here cleaning fish after a frustrating, empty-netted night? I mean, you can fill in your own blank. And I love Gideon's response. He says to the, the angel of the Lord, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon looks at him and says, Lord, what have you done for me lately? I hear these stories. You brought us out of Egypt. You brought us through the Red Sea. You did all these amazing things. But here I am threshing wheat in a wine press. What have you done for us lately? And the angel of the Lord looks at him and he does not call him what he obviously is. This is what... I got a lot of thoughts about this Gideon story, uh, which again, I can tell you another time. Uh, but he looks at him, and do you know what he calls him? Mighty man of valor. Gideon calls himself the weakest among my clan, the weakest in my family, the weakest in my tribe. I'm just the weakest, and I'm here hiding out, trying to scrap a little bit of grain to make it through the winter. But the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, looks at him and says, Mighty man of valor, go and drive out the Midianites. 
And I'm thinking about this this week, and I, I, I was just wondering, you know, when was the last time you remember the name that the Lord called you at your own calling? When was the last time that you remembered that God came to you and called you out of something? Some of you I know he called out of addiction. Some of you I know he called out of deep purposelessness. Some of you had been called out of grief and loss. What was the name that the Lord gave you in that moment? Was it mighty man of valor? Was it sign of my beauty? Was it bearer of good news? What name did the Lord give you when he called you? I want you to remember that name. Remember who it was that God called you to be. Because so often over the course of our lives in Christ, we become consumed with a small view of ourselves. A small view of our salvation. I'm just here kind of struggling through. It's all I can do to kind of be decent, right? And sometimes we even, we sort of give ourselves a pass. I'm so wicked and I'm so awful and I'm so weak. I don't really have anything to offer. And we call that humility, but it's really pride because we don't want to surrender ourselves fully. We become consumed with a small view of ourselves and that has its root in a small view of God. That God doesn't really want to do very much with this world. That God doesn't really want to do very much with me. That God's salvation is not that transformative. That God's redemption doesn't go that deep. What we really need is just to sort of clean the surface. We don't need to get all the way down deep into the nuts and bolts. Jesus is also not just in a wine press, in Ophra. What was that, Becky? Was that where it was? <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Jesus is also on the shores of Galilee, seeing and calling Peter. You remember what he told him? Put out into the deep water. That's the first calling. Now, like Gideon in the wine press, this makes no fishing sense. Okay? The way they fished, Clyde's not here. The way they fished in the ancient world, in Jesus' day, you got in a boat, you hung a lantern off the end of the boat, and the fish, like a bunch of moths to your you know, porch light, would swim up to the top thinking, there's the moon. Right? And then you throw your nets down, and you snag those fish, all right? So here's the, if, you, if it's already daytime, if the sun is already up, and the boat is already parked, and the nets are already out and getting cleaned, this is not a good time to put out and fish. In fact, it's like saying, just go throw a hook in the water. 
where there have been no bites. Don't put any bait on it and do it at the wrong time of day. Right? Nothing is going to happen, Jesus. But he tells him, put out into the deep water. It doesn't make any fishing sense. It also doesn't make any spiritual sense on the surface. Jews in Jesus' day were not big fans of deep water, right? You notice even though they got a lot of coast, you don't hear much about the ancient Jewish navy, right? There's a lot of coastline, but there's no navy. Why? Because they do not mess with the sea. They do not mess with the deep water. Why? Because Genesis 1, that is tovu vabohu, formless and void. That's where the chaos lives. That's where Leviathan lives. That's where the deep, dark, weird monsters are in the deep water. That's where the chaos is. It's where Jonah goes down and down and down and down until he's swallowed by the monster. You see? So we don't go there. We're good Jews. And Jesus tells him, put out into the deep water. Put out into the chaos. Put out into the places where things don't make sense. Put out into the places where the only one, this is critical, where the only one who can save you is God. Where your intellect won't save you, your emotional intelligence won't save you. Your sales skills are not going to save you. Your ability to turn a wrench will not save you. Your ability to be charismatic and the life of the party is not going to save you. Put out into the deep where the only thing that can save you, he says, is God. And it's like Gideon realizing he's seen the Lord. Alas, O oh Lord, is what Gideon says after the angel of the Lord departs him. Alas, O oh Lord, I've seen the Lord and now I'm going to die. He's convinced. Isaiah, depart from me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. If God shows up, we are going to get annihilated. Peter, after this catch of fish, falls and grabs Jesus' knees. Depart from me, O Lord. I am a sinful man. All of these confessions are half true. Peter's confession is half true. I am a sinful man. That's true. What Peter is wrong about is that if the Lord leaves him, it doesn't help him. If Jesus departs, that doesn't save him. It might save him from the feeling of judgment. It might save him from the sense of impending doom or the guilt that feels like it's eating away at him, but it doesn't actually save him. What Peter comes to see and to know is that for him to be saved, he doesn't need to depart from Jesus. He needs to cling to him. He doesn't need to be far from the Lord. He needs to be as close as he can to the Lord. And so much of our religion and so much of our faith is built around dealing with the feelings of guilt and the feelings that we want Jesus to depart. But what we need is to be as close as possible we possibly can to him.
Oh, you need us to cling. I was reading a book this week. Maybe I should stop doing that. I don't know. Um. <laughs> it gets me fired up, Rosalie, when I read books. <laughs> I was talking about holiness. And the author, I'm convinced she's right. Was saying that the way we've talked about holiness, and, and we talk about it a lot in the Church of the Nazarene, but the way we've talked about it for a long time has been self-referential. And, and what I mean is we've said, I want to be holy, right? Sometimes we've said, God is holy, and so I want to be holy. But what we've usually said is, I want to be holy. How do I get sanctified? How do I become this thing that we call holy? Well, what's, what is that sentence about? <laughs> Me, right? It's self. I mean, it's about my holiness. It's about me either achieving or receiving something. But I'm the thing that I'm the standard. I, I'm the thing that I look at and say, did I get there or did I not? Did I succeed or did I fail? Our holiness becomes about me and my life. And that's not the holiness scripture is talking about. The holiness that Scripture talks about over and over is a holiness that takes us into communion with the triune God. It's a holiness that says in Genesis 1 that the Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That they were in a let's walk through the neighborhood in the evening kind of relationship. It's a holiness that says I'm going to do everything I can not just so you don't feel bad, but so that you can get to a place where we can be in communion with each other so that we can eat together. Even to the point of sacrifice, even to the point of death. Peter's obedience, it takes him out into the deep. And he catches this, this big catch of fish, and that's wonderful. But Simon Peter, we know, and the reason that Luke starts with Peter, it's because Jesus is going to say, it is on Peter that I will build my church. It's not just about Peter's holiness. It's about the communion that God is looking to build through Peter and through the 12 disciples with all of humanity, with all of creation, and it begins with his church. We are Peter's descendants in that way. Because yes, he begins that church in Peter and in those disciples, but we as Cody prayed, we're the fruit of it. We're the fruit of that church that crossed ethnic lines and geographic lines and language lines that went all through the world and eventually trickled its way down to us, thanks be to God. But even in that moment, Simon Peter is not alone. He takes this boat out into the deep, and when he catches the fish, who is he talking to? James, John all of his partners trying to get this fish, this catch of fish in. So immediately the gifts that God gives are something that caused Peter to depend on the people around him. It's something that pushes people, Peter, into relationship and into communion and into dependence and vulnerability because he's not strong enough to do the thing that Jesus has called him to do. And that's what it is for us to follow Christ. See, Jesus wants me to talk to people about him. Wonderful, good. Gold, gold star, A+. Plus. Let's go do it. Well, all of a sudden, I've talked to somebody, and they believed in Jesus. They have questions I don't have the answer to. So now i got to run to somebody else. 
who can help me do this thing, right? Or they have needs that I don't have the ability to meet, financial, emotional, relational, or otherwise. When we respond to Jesus, we are always being pushed in communion and dependence on Christ, but even on his church. I don't know if you ever walk into this building and, you know, feel like you want to look for a life preserver. Maybe we should hang some on the pillars here. But, you know, the architect, there's a hundred jillion of these church buildings all over the world. You can, I, I promise you, in just about every city in America, there's a church that looks just like this. Now, it's not as special as ours, but it looks just like this, right? With these, the arches and the, and the you know, churches built early 1960s, you know, one out of two chance. This is what it's going to look like. Now, there was a, some, some interpreters tell us that this building is actually meant to look like the inside of a boat. The ribs, right? Is that true? I don't know, but it really works for this sermon, so I'm going to go ahead and go with it. That the church <laughs> is the boat into which Jesus calls us so that when he calls us to push out into the deep, to go into those places of chaos, to go into those places that are not yet tamed, but still sort of determined by the wildness of sin and the lack of creation, <laughs> the sort of edges of creation where things are not quite what we want them to be, but we're looking to bring them into the kingdom. We're looking to bring them into order. God calls us into the boat to do this together. And just like the ark bringing us through the flood, it's, it's Christ's church that brings us through the deep water so that we can eventually end up on the other side in his kingdom where he restores and makes all things right and whole. You see, when we are called to follow Jesus, we are given the power to do the things that Jesus calls us to do. And when Jesus says, put out into the deep, that's not code for go and do the impossible. Right? That's not code for go do something absurd. When he says, put out into the deep, I'm convinced of a couple things. So the first thing is that the calling of Jesus normatively, I'm not saying that there aren't exceptions, the calling of Jesus normatively involves the church. Okay? It always involves communion. It's normal for the calling of Jesus to involve the church. It always involves communion with the Lord, right? With the Lord typically in his church. The calling of Jesus is not a private conviction that excludes the rest of Jesus' people. So if, if you think that Jesus is calling you to something, and it just so happens to cut off all or most of the believers that you know, there's a good chance you need to sit down with a wise person and discern whether that's really the calling of Jesus or whether you're putting something onto the Holy Spirit that's from yourself. Put out into the deep is not code for go do the impossible, but it's a calling for a phrase that has changed my life, a long obedience in the same direction. 
long obedience in the same direction. Meaning we're going to be obedient to Jesus, and we might not see the fruit of it today or tomorrow or next year. But we should, must, cannot get discouraged because we don't see the fruit of it now. We cannot get discouraged because that obedience has led us into suffering. We cannot get discouraged because the only way out of this thing that Jesus has called us to is resurrection. We cannot get discouraged. That is the life that Jesus calls us into. A life of faith, of hope, of trust, of knowing that even the deep water will not overwhelm. That even when we're put through fiery trials, Man, what's the, I, I just, I need to say it right. <laughs> when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Gideon's calling still had a lot of steps ahead of him. Peter's calling still required at least three years of formation before he was sent out on his own. And I wonder sometimes, have we taken our initial calling to Christ? To believe, maybe we had an experience of sanctification. I mean, I could tell you about the altar at Southeast Church of the Nazarene. That sort of like sanctifying moment if I have to. But I also know that Christ's sanctifying holiness in me has been this slow process of the Holy Spirit pressing, pressing, pressing it through friction and suffering and resistance. And so often in believers, I'm, I'm not sure we want the long obedience in the same direction. I'm not sure we want to continue to be converted in Christ. I'm not sure we're in it sometimes for the, the grinding, friction-filled kind of life. I was reading another book, again, <laughs> this week. And the author of that book described a few stages in people coming to belief in Christ. The first, we talked about it yesterday at Men's Breakfast. The first was kind of this initial trust, uh, relationship with believers, that kind of thing. The second becomes this spiritual curiosity. You know, I, I've got these questions that I, I need answered. The third is a spiritual openness where it's like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, there might be truth in this. You know, I, I really, the fourth is this spiritual seeking where it's like, now I really got questions I'm actively, I'm not just passively, you know, waiting for things to come to me. I'm, I'm out there looking for it. I'm showing up things. I'm reading books. I'm doing all this stuff. Um, and the fifth, finally, is intentional disciples. And, and what I encouraged the men yesterday morning and, and what I'd encourage you today is to reflect on what stage are you on. Whether you're saved or not. Because there are a lot of us who get saved in the church and don't ever move into intentional discipleship. 
There's a lot of us who say, Jesus saves me, and he answers those questions I have, but we don't move to that place where Jesus has put his hand on our shoulders and said, put out into the deep. Go enter into the chaos of your world. Go enter into the chaos of your inner space. I will be with you. I'll give you the power you need. I think a lot of us, this is the description of spiritual seekers, that fourth step. They're on an urgent spiritual quest. They have a relationship with Jesus, not religion or music or theology or Bible or worship style. And that sounds pretty good, but that also sounds like where a lot of believers leave it. The intentional disciple lives a life of conscious commitment, forming our minds and our emotions to the person and the calling of Jesus. And this is where I'm so convicted in my own life. Have I lived up to that name that Jesus called me when he put his hand on my shoulder and said, put out into the deep? Or have I lived with a kind of half-true confession? I don't know if you're in a, a fruitless moment. <laughs> if you feel like you're cleaning empty nets after getting skunked all night. Or if you're threshing wheat in a wine press out of fear. If you're just going through the motions of faith instead of living a life of faith. If you are, I want to invite you into the deep. You may need to step out into a little bit of chaos, not recklessly, but with a good boat and good people in order to find and follow the Lord. It may mean, mean that you need to become a student again and really learn. I tried to take a class recently. I took a lot of classes in my life. <laughs> I tried to take this online class. Oh, man, I haven't logged in for like a week and a half because I just get like, I'm out of the habit, right? It's hard to become a student again. I got other things to do. It's hard to lean into that kind of life again. And yet sometimes Jesus is calling us to put out into the deep. It may mean learning some philosophy. It may mean studying the culture. It might mean learning how to talk to strangers, creating a plan of action and following it. My own fear in this, um, I was actually thinking yesterday, man, what if everybody responded? That'd be awful. <laughs> what if everybody said yes to this? <laughs> this thing that I feel like Jesus has put on my heart. I already feel like I got enough to do, and then I, everybody's going to respond, and, and they're, which, <laughs> and what is that but my own fear? My own fear that it's, it's my job to somehow shepherd and lead this congregation. It's my job to be responsible for your faith. When it's not, it's, it's Jesus who is our shepherd. It's Jesus who's 
our pastor, and, and if everybody here will respond and say, yes, Lord, I, I want to put myself out here. I don't know how it's going to happen, but, but the Lord will do it. <laughs> point under five, point D, I hear, I just have, oh, Lord, the scheduling. <laughs> I want to encourage you to come to the table today, as always. But I want to encourage you to come in the knowledge and in the hope that the Lord is calling you to put out into the deep and, in fact, continues to call you to put out into the deep. To go to that place where maybe there's some chaos. To go to that place where there may be some fear. Again, not irresponsibly, but boldly. Not carelessly, but with vulnerability and hope. Saying, Lord, this will only work if I cling to you and to your people and to your church. I really do want to encourage you. One of my favorite things to do is to sit with people and talk about this kind of thing. And I, I'd, I'd love to spend an hour or two with you, not giving you the answer, but exploring what Jesus might be doing in you and with you and figuring out how we can be the boat. You know, what small way we can come around. Um, so please don't hesitate to reach out if that's what the Spirit is calling you to do today. Um, I'm not here to, you know, tell you to put out into the deep and then leave. I believe Jesus loves you, and I believe that he has called you into life with him. Pastor Cody, would you come and lead us in the table? Lord God, we thank you for this calling that you've placed on our lives, a calling that we don't understand, a calling that for many of us, I'm sure, carries an element of fear. But I also know, Lord, that you are not a God who abandons, but your spirit is with us all the time, leading, directing, caring, and empowering us to do your work. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in those ways that you have called us to serve you today. Amen.